T.S. Eliot, the great 20th century poet and convert to Christianity, once warned that the last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount together, and as we moved on today to chapter 6, there's a topical shift that takes place. We enter new terrain in Jesus' teaching on the kingdom life, and Jesus begins this section with a word of warning. Beware. That's what he says. Beware. Prosecco in Greek, which literally means be cautious, pay attention, beware. It's an ominous way for Jesus to begin a new topic, isn't it? But he wants to jolt us into paying attention. Years ago, when I was still in the campus ministry world, I was selected to be a part of a special cohort or learning group that was gathering out of state to focus on the topic of ministry growth, how to grow the number of students involved in your campus group. And it was an honor to be selected. But at the same time, as the week went on, I remember feeling like many of the presentations were focused too much on numbers to the neglect of discipleship, or too focused on quantity rather than quality, or on implementing business principles rather than depending upon the Spirit of God. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with ministry growth. It can be a sign of health. The book of Acts, for example, uh, gives consistent updates of the church growing in numbers, and I'm grateful that incarnation has been growing, but not if it's to the neglect of discipleship. One day, as I was headed back to my room after a session, I expressed some of these concerns in kind of a lighthearted and joking way to a trusted mentor of mine named Paul, who happened to be at the same hotel on other business. And it was a super brief conversation that happened in the course of an elevator ride, but he was listening deeply and prayerfully as he always did, and just as the elevator dinged and he was about to get off, he leaned in and said one word, beware. Then he got off, and I was left to ponder this mysterious word. Why had Paul taken my lighthearted concerns so seriously? Was, was I really in spiritual danger after all? Hadn't I been brought there for a good reason to learn about ministry growth? What was Paul warning me to beware of? Well, there's something similar going on here in Matthew 6, isn't there? Jesus is talking about good spiritual practices like giving and praying and fasting. But he wants us to know that these things can be done for the wrong reason. What is it that Jesus wants us to be wary of? Would you please grab a Bible and turn with me to page 811? Matthew chapter 6, page 811 in your pew Bible. And he lays out for us in verse 1 what he wants us to pay attention to. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And to remove any confusion, Jesus provides several examples. Like the person who sounds the trumpet in the synagogues and in the streets every time they make a donation that they may be praised by others. Or the person who loves to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Verse 5, but they have no private prayer life. Or the person who intentionally looks gloomy every time they fast, disfiguring their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Verse 16, 
what Jesus is warning us about is a kind of spiritual virtue signaling. And as Bev illustrated so hilariously in her reenactment, there seems to be a real note of humor at this point in the sermon, in the way that Jesus describes trumpet blowing and gloomy faces. But the humor has satirical bite. Jesus calls them hypocrites, which was a word used at the time for Greek stage actors or someone who's merely pretending. Might be interesting for you to know that Jesus is the first person in recorded history to use the word hypocrite to describe the falsely religious. In each case, Jesus shines light upon their true intention to be seen by others, to be praised by others, not to actually love God and draw near to God. They're more like stage actors looking for applause. And since impressing others with their piety is their true goal, the admiration of other men is the only reward that they're going to get. Thus, Jesus' oft-repeated refrain in this text, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They've already received their reward. Did you really think that just because you are on religious terrain that you were safe from soul-distorting sin? Far from it. According to Jesus, as you enter the religious sphere, the temptation is only ratcheted up. The last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And no wonder, as 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 reminds us, for even Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So when I go back to the warning that my mentor Paul gave me as a young campus minister, I realize now that he had a solid basis for his grave concern. Did I really think that just because I was at a ministry growth gathering, I was safe from the danger of hypocrisy? Instead, it is Jesus Christ himself, not Freud or Marx or Nietzsche, who was the most devastating religious critic of all time. And for good reason, he built into the faith a kind of spiritual immune system, as it were, a way of identifying and expelling from ourselves false intentions from the equation by his word and by his Holy Spirit. Now, does this mean that Jesus wants us to avoid religion altogether? Far from it. It was Jesus who established the church, who appointed its first apostolic leadership, who instituted the sacraments. Even in this passage, he treats it as a basic assumption, does he not, that his disciples will be engaged in religious practices. He says, when you give to the needy, verse 2, and when you pray, verse 5, and when you fast, verse 16. For Jesus, it's not a question of if, but when. And how about you? Do you set aside time to meet secretly with the Father? Do you still meditate upon his word daily like you did when you first fell in love with Jesus Christ? If not, perhaps you will allow Jesus' words here in Matthew 6 to call you back to himself. But if so, even if so, we must remember that the essence of true religion or true spirituality, if you prefer a more modern word, is that our hearts and our intentions must be directed not to visible men, but to invisible God. There should be dynamics in your spiritual life that are just between you and the Father alone. Amen? In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say that we should hide 
our spiritual disciplines from other people. Verse 17, but when you fast, pour oil on your head and wash your face so that it may not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is in heaven. Likewise, if we have a good time with the Lord in scripture study or prayer, we don't need to tell other people about it. Spiritual disciplines are not about impressing other people or even about impressing ourselves. Did you notice in verse 3 that he says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your giving may be done in secret. So instead of congratulating ourselves, Jesus wants us to direct our energy outward to the love of God and to mercy for our fellow man. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is opposed to all communal religious practices. The Gospels record that as a faithful Israelite, it was his custom to attend the synagogue on every Sabbath. And he regularly travels to Jerusalem to keep the yearly feasts and holy days. Jesus was not opposed to the kind of corporate fasting we see described in our Old Testament reading today from Joel 2, or that the church commonly practiced in the book of Acts, or that we continue to observe during the season of Lent. And let us also not forget to factor in the exhortation already spoken by Christ in Matthew 5, 16. He said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, when you read that alongside of the passage today, you may be thinking, okay, this seems like a contradiction. But Jesus intends us to live in that tension. Because there's a time for hidden prayer. And there's a time for dancing freely in the midst of the assembly like King David and saying, I will become even more undignified than this. I don't care if you jeer at me. There's a time for hidden fasting and there's a time to couple your fast with the pursuit of public justice like Isaiah the prophet describes in Isaiah 58. Likewise, there's a time to share the gospel through our silent deeds of service and there's a time to testify to the gospel through our words. A.B. Bruce sums it up when he writes that we are to show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. Nevertheless, in the midst of these Lenten disciplines, I believe that Jesus would issue this particular beware, prosecco, from Matthew 6, 1 to us afresh. His warnings are intended as a shot in the arm to our spiritual immune system. Beware, beloved, if every time you give, someone else needs to be notified. Beware, beloved, if the only time you pray anymore is when you're around other people. Beware, beloved, if the only time you fast is when there's a communal fast and you're never checking your excesses at other times. And beware when someone wants to talk to you about ministry growth and in doing so seems to set aside our growth into the likeness of Christ. At the end of the passage, Jesus summarizes his point in verses 19 through 20. 21, saying, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Because things like human applause, right? Are they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
This doesn't simply mean that we have to take care not to let our treasure have our hearts. Right? Jesus' words cut deeper than that. His point is that if we truly treasure something, be it money or success or our religious reputation, it already has our hearts. In fact, when Jesus calls us to go into our room for secret prayer in verse 6, the Greek word is often used for a storeroom where treasure is kept. The point is, if your treasure is the very heart of God, your treasure will always be secure. And lest we allow our entire focus to be upon the warning and not upon the Father's utterly, utterly gracious invitation, let us take a moment to take in this almost unfathomable truth that your Creator wants to spend time with you. It's you alone. We need not shy away because of our shame. The Father wants to spend time with you. We need not pull away because of lesser loves. The lover of our souls wants to meet with us in secret. Blessed are the ones who set aside time to treasure the God who treasures them. Amen. Amen. Now we're going to open it up for a brief time of questions. And um, like I mentioned, uh, um, just answering questions maybe that have arisen over the last few weeks, um, clarifications and questions. We've covered a lot in the Sermon on the Mount so far, from the Beatitudes to the call to be salt and light, the six antitheses on the topics of anger, lust, divorce, swearing oaths, turning the other cheek, and love for our enemies. And I'm open to fielding some questions on any of these topics. But first, as a way of priming the pump, let me start with some clarifications or retractions that John and Fumi and I have been discussing amongst ourselves over the last few weeks, all right? So, for example, I had a good question last week about how the call to love our enemies relates to situations of abuse, whether physical or sexual or otherwise. And the pastoral team wants to be clear that we believe that this is not what the Lord Jesus had in mind when he talked about turning the other cheek. We believe that the good shepherd would call people out of such situations rather than facing continual abuse. I remember somebody close to me um, couldn't be in the room any longer without being petrified, couldn't be in the room of their abuser any longer. And they said, I, I forgive them, I, I have goodwill towards them, but I just get terrified. And I asked them, would you mind? I, I said, I, I, I totally understand, and it's terrible what you face from that person. Would you mind if I tried to share the gospel with them, if I tried to reach out to them? And, and the person was, was grateful for that. Also, um, in Pastor John's sermon on swearing oaths, uh, he agreed that it was an exaggeration to, maybe an exaggeration to compare marriage vows with a light uh, agreement made over text. Uh, but overall, we still believe that Christ, for Christians, it's important to try their best to keep their commitments and keep their word that we set aside our yeses and our noes too lightly. But we believe Jesus' call is to plain honest speech, not treating, not necessarily treating every yes or no as if it's a vow before God, but at the same time, if, if we don't follow through on our word, we should be the kind of people that people are like, oh, something must have happened, because that's a reliable person, right? Finally, let me bring up the topic um, uh, that Fumi brought up in uh, um, 
uh, in his sermon about lust, uh, which he'll have an opportunity to elaborate on, uh, as well as intimacy with the Father in his sermon next week on the Lord's Prayer. He mentioned from the book of James that temptation is caused by our own wayward desires. On the other hand, we want to make it clear that temptations can also come from the evil one. Right, um, Just as we saw in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was in the wilderness with the devil. This doesn't mean we can simply say, the devil made me do it, uh, like Eve tries to do in the garden. Right, But um, we also believe it's dangerous to disregard the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. Indeed, our baptismal vows mention three sources of evil that come at us, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And all of them need to be resisted in turn. All right, so that's just to stir the pot. But uh, Fumi's got a microphone. And if you have any questions about these chapters, we just felt like this is really deep, heavy stuff. And we want to give a little bit of time to nuance some things. So I'll field questions for a few minutes. In my observation, Satan will often use that to get people to delay doing the right thing because they're like, I just, I know I can't do it for the right reason yet. What would be your pastoral scriptural counterpoint so that I know in my own heart, like I have uh, delayed some measure of repentance or some uh, measure of service to the kingdom because I recognize in my own heart, like a mixed bag of motives of self aggrandizement. Yeah. Um, and it just seems like Satan works <laughs> anything Abs- you can. Yeah, so absolutely. When you recognize the right and you see mixed bag in your heart, um, how do you not then not do the right? Yeah, that's a great question. And just to kind of give a little a little crack at it, um, I think sometimes um, uh, when we're questioning our own intentions, um, uh, it's it's a it can be a matter of of discomfort in what we're doing. Um, so so um, for example. You know, the first time that someone crosses themselves, they might say, like, this isn't really what I normally do. This isn't normally a part of my piety. And so there's a there's an actual, like, getting comfortable with certain practices. Or maybe somebody's a worship leader, and they used to just kind of play in a band, and, and now they're trying to pray, play, uh, excuse me, play um, and lead the people of God in worship. And sometimes they have a hard time getting out of, like, performance mode. And I'll, I'll kind of tell people, give it some time. Um, but in the end, if you just can't get past that and just start to be able to worship, um, then maybe that's not the best role for you, right? So there are things like that. And then there are other things that I think are necessary matters of obedience, such as like forgiving others, right? Um, and sometimes we will withhold forgiveness because it doesn't feel authentic, right? And, um, and I think in those times, the Lord wants us to give him our will, our choice, so to speak, even if the uh, it's like it's like our our feet walk through the door first, and then like our emotions maybe walk in later, you know. And sometimes it's a good deal later. So I think it depends on the circumstance. I think there are some things we can and maybe should actually avoid because it's not something that we can do with faith, and it's not a necessary thing. But I think if it's a necessary thing, um, like um, forgiving others, or like like something as basic as prayer or studying scripture, um, I think there's a way in which we can begin to engage in that. And even though this passage is emphasizing hiddenness, um, another thing that James says is confess your sins to one another and be healed. I think another um, a tool that the Lord has given us to empower us or to, to purify our hearts, so to speak, is to be able to bring someone else in on that thing we're struggling with. You know, I'm struggling 
with my time in scripture um, because I, I care so much about being right, for example. So it's no longer about meeting with God. Uh, I mean, you know, hypothetically speaking. Uh, um, and, um, but but will, you, will you pray with me and, and maybe ask me about that once a month as, as we meet with each other uh, and pray for the Holy Spirit to convict my heart and sort of like right the ship um, because it, the, the role of Scripture is too precious in our lives to, to set aside in that way. Just piggybacking off of that, um, you know, T.S. Eliot uh, says that the last reason um, is doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. What would be an example of doing the wrong thing for the right reason, and why isn't that worse? Yeah, doing the wrong thing for the right reason. Um, hmm. <laughs> Let me try to think of one on the... Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think I understand. I'm just trying to think of an example on the fly. You know, um, you know, maybe you could tell someone that their haircut looks terrible, and you're saying, I'm just being honest. That could maybe be doing the wrong thing for the right reason. <laughs> you know, you're, you're actually ridiculing someone. You should actually hold your tongue, you know. Um, I think that there, are, that there are times when it's not about just a principle of honesty, you know, that there's a deeper principle of love at work. And I think that's the ultimate decider of whether, um, whether something is for the right reason or whether something's really in line with the Lord. And sometimes I think these matters take, take some touch or discernment. You know, uh, We need our brothers and sisters. Um, ethical matters, um, as some of my brothers and sisters in here who have studied philosophy, are, can be really complicated. You know? so, um, but, um, but yeah, I, 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 think, I think the more that we are engaged in Scripture... Um, Hebrews talks about that we learn to distinguish good from evil the more that we're in Scripture, you know? And I think there's a similar way in when we're around Scripture-saturated people, they help us to discern or tell stories about how they tried to apply that. Because sometimes it's, the Scriptures almost can't be understood apart from the life of someone who's already sought to live that out. You know, that's when the, the inner spiritual logic of the Scriptures is unlocked, so... I think that's it. I think that's a good question. I I don't know if I I totally got at it, but I, I, that was my attempt. <laughs> yeah, one or two more, Monica. Um, so as an educator, I have a considerable number of students that come from both broken homes, and uh, my question is I, I don't know if you could uh, answer this question, but you know something that has been stirring within my heart is um, just how do you teach these radical Christian principles such as, you know, um, giving without validation from others or just a sense of radical grace yeah. to children who have a difficult time practicing these principles? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, I, I have two thoughts on it. One is um, historically the church has usually started with the Ten Commandments when teaching ethics and morality to people because there's a little bit more of a of a sort of simplicity to the, the, the right and wrong. It's a little bit clearer picture for people and then move on to some of these kind of like deeper applications of it. And it reminds me of um, Irenaeus who talks about how God in, in, the, in the progress of, of revealing himself through scripture, which we believe all scripture is God breathed, but there's a sense in which he even clarifies who he is and what his way is along the way. So God spoke it many times and in various ways through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. So, 
So even God sort of takes us by the hand, as it were, as children, and leads us to the heart of the matter, to the center of the faith, which is Christ. So I think it's um, probably best to kind of establish uh, something like the Ten Commandments and then be able to lead them into the deeper waters of how Jesus gets to the heart of how, you know, uh, anger, you know, can be like murdering our brother in our heart or that, um, or, you know, other challenging things like lust and stuff like that. Yeah, Brian. So I think the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's like an understatement to say it's really hard to live it out. Yes. Um, <laughs> probably impossible, especially when he's like, be perfect. Yeah. Um, so, and multiple times when we've talked about it, I'm like, okay, but you have a helper in the Holy Spirit. Mm. So this is like a great mercy that we have this impossible ideal, but also this incredible relationship with the Holy Spirit where he's working mm -hmm. in us. So we have this picture of an impossible ideal, a Holy Spirit helping us, a merciful Father who's forgiving us. And this mm -hmm. is like, this is great. Now, the question for me is, what should my attitude be about my personal intentions then? Because I've got this helper. It's almost like in my picture, the Holy Spirit's my spotter. I'm at the gym, mm -hmm. right? And I'm like, I'm bench yeah. pressing. Yeah. And like, am I supposed to be pushing as hard as I can all the time and he'll get the last 15 pounds? Right. Um, I think that's my natural inclination is yeah. to say like, okay, I'm, I have to try as hard as I can, but good news is he'll forgive me. He also gives me his Holy Spirit. A lot of the times I get so frustrated with that attitude mm -hmm. that I just say to the Holy Spirit, what the heck are you doing? Like, mm -hmm. you're, you're so powerful. Yeah. You're so strong. Why am I still struggling with this? Yeah. Like, couldn't you do a little bit more for me here? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I really, like, pastorally mm -hmm. don't know how to console myself yeah. in those moments yeah. and say, what should my attitude be about myself? Yeah. And how much I'm putting towards this yeah. impossible ideal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I, and I do just want to say, I don't think Jesus views it, uh, uh, views his teachings. By the way, your question was so well put, I almost want to like exegete it and like preach on it or something. <laughs> but um, um, I don't think Jesus views these as impossible ideals. I think he views this as true humanity. Um, that doesn't mean, uh, as, I, as I tried to say last week, that anybody is going to walk perfectly in this, um, except for Jesus, on this side of heaven. But I think it's a really important distinction because if we view it as like excessive busy work on the part of God, rather than um, like this sort of like instruction manual for human flourishing um, coming straight from the love of our maker, you know, when he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he wants to draw us to the only worthy goal that there is, which is to, to abide in his love and, and to walk in it. So I, I do, I do want to just say that. Um, I think that um, the New Testament wants to present almost a kind of like polled answer to this. Like where does, where does effort come in and, 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 uh, and where does it start to become um, just sort of like, you know, irresponsible. I'm just going to wait around for the Holy Spirit to just kind of like fall on me from on high, you know. Um, and I think um, the polls is like on the one hand, we know that when we, when God gives us grace to follow him or to, to even like worship him and have our hearts pointed at him or to 
uh, do a, a really difficult thing like turn the other cheek or, or something that we're finding difficult to do, um, on the one hand, when, when we are able to fulfill the words of Christ, we know that we have no, no grounds for boasting. But on the other hand, um, we, can, we can talk about um, the sort of sovereignty of God or the role of the Spirit in such a way that it completely dismisses the idea of human responsibility. And that's the other way to kind of fall off, right? And so, um, you know, on the last day, you know, we'll want to be able to say, you know, it's only by your grace that I made it here, but it's a grace that we have been participating with all along, right? By faith and, and even by spiritual disciplines like what we're talking about today. So, so, um, so for example, um, if you are struggling with lust, like a spiritual discipline that, that I used to, you know, have college students do is I used to ask them, like, tell me about your mother, you know, tell me a little bit about your relationship with your mom. Do you have any sisters? Tell me about your relationship with them. Yeah, what is it that you love about them? What do you what is it you find beautiful about them? And and um, and then I would we would talk a little bit about the sex trafficking and all the all the ways that that women get involved in like pornography and stuff like that. And like, what do you think their lives were like leading up to that and all this sort of stuff? And and then we would pray for their mother and sister and pray for the women caught up in this and. And I would just suggest to them, um, let this be the first prayer every day. You know, pray for your mother and sister. Pray for women caught up in sex trafficking. And allow yourself to kind of enter into this love you have for these women in your life and the grieving that you have for this, like, corrupt practice. And somehow through that, through the grace of a spiritual, dis- I mean, the spiritual discipline, we're, we're trying to make ourselves available for the strengthening and grace of God. Right? And so... Um, I, I do just want to say, too, um, it's not always about trying as hard as we can. I mean, one of the ways that God um, sanctifies us is through providential circumstances, right? Like, there's a way in which marriage is, like, busy sanctifying me from self-centeredness in a way that I just don't have this sort of, like, muscular ability to, like, lift those spiritual disciplines myself, but... But by God's grace and by his ordering and, and, the, and the gift of marriage, he's like, I'm going to be working on that one for a long time. <laughs> and I'm going to be chipping away on that one for a long time. So, so um, I think it's also a mistake to think that sanctification is only coming through our direct effort and, and, um, and spiritual disciplines. Um, the Lord is at work in areas of our life. When we've said yes to the lordship of Jesus, we've said yes to the, kind of the, the, the total package, right? And so we're giving him permission to work on the cracks and crevices of our hearts. So um, I, I don't know if that, that totally solves the dilemma, but I do think that, that the part of us that's trying to participate in God is something more like uh, spiritual disciplines, which don't have a value in and of themselves. I don't think Jesus thought that the gloomy fasters, that that, that that fasting was of any value to them, really, you know, except to impress other people. Spiritual disciplines don't have value in themselves, but they put us in a place where we are asking God to, to give us what we need and to fill us in the ways, rather than just waiting around for the Holy Spirit to strike us with a lightning bolt, so to speak. I'm definitely willing to talk more about this stuff, and I would love to take more questions, but... Um, we're going to continue to um, move forward in the Sermon on the Mount, and um, and as we plow forward in it, 
perhaps other questions will stir for you, and you could just pull us aside. We don't, we're not the Bible answer. We don't have all the answers, but, um, and, uh, and let's talk about it further. Um, great. Amen.